Stay hungry, stay foolish. We are living in a time of mounting political segregation that threatens to tear us apart as a unified society. The result is that we are becoming increasingly tribal, and the narratives of life that we get exposed to on a daily basis have become echo chambers in which we hear our beliefs reinforced and others' beliefs demonized. At the core of tribalism exists a paradox. As humans, we are hardwired with the need to belong, which ends up making us deeply connected with some yet deeply divided from others. When these tribes are formed out of fear of the other, on topics such as race, immigration status, religion, or partisan politics, we resort to an us-versus-them attitude. Especially in the digital age, when we are all interconnected in one way or another, these tensions seep into our daily lives and we become secluded with our self-identified tribes. Today's guest explores how our human need to belong is the driving force behind the increasing division of our world. Drawing upon decades of leadership experience, he probes the depths of tribalism, examines the role of social media in exasperating it, and offers tactics for how to combat it. Filled with tested practices for opening safe and honest dialogue in the workplace and challenges to confront our own tendencies to bond with those who are like us, his book, Our Search for Belonging, is a powerful statement of hope in a disquieting time. We welcome diversity and inclusion expert and author of Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. Howard Ross, welcome to the show. Aidan, thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I loved the Maya Angelou quote that you opened with, Howard. You're only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. The price is high, the reward is great. And I think that's a great context setter for why you wrote this book. Yeah, absolutely, Aiden. You know, I mean, I think that Dr. Maya's quote really captures it because I think that this is something that most human beings struggle with. And that is, at one hand, we want to feel independent. We want to feel like we can handle everything by ourselves. And and I think, you know, being an American is especially true because this is part of the American ethos, you know, the, the sense of, of independence. But I think, I think throughout the Western world, that's especially true. You know, it's not necessarily as true when you get to other parts of the, of the world where people are much more group focused. But at the same time, as we have this desire to feel like we could do everything on our own, we also have a tremendous social function as human beings that's tied into our survival. And that is to fit in with people around us, to be part of something larger than ourselves. And the dichotomy between the two can leave us twisted in knots at times. You say our communities have increasingly become political enclaves. Our places of worship, social organizations, and exposure to media and social media amplify the polarization of society. We mostly focused in the book on the United States because we just thought it would be better to go deeper into this particular cultural phenomenon than extremely broader. But we could just as easily have talked about what's going on in England with Brexit or what's going on in Germany or in uh, Northern Europe with Russian immigrants coming in. You know, we could have gone to what's going on in Asia in a lot of countries because we see this split in lots of places. And and I think what's happening is increasingly here in the States, anyway, we're living in more and more politically defined enclaves. The Cook Political Report did this study, uh, started in 1992, which they called the Whole Foods Cracker Barrel Study. And uh, what they did is they looked at communities around Whole Foods markets, which is gen- are generally liberal communities, Whole Foods being an organic marketplace and the like, and Cracker Barrel family restaurants, which usually are in more conservative 
areas. Uh, it's, it's sort of a classic Southern food restaurant, if you will. And they tracked it. They've tracked it politically. What they found was in 1992, when President Clinton ran against President Bush, there was about a 21% difference in those communities. In other words, in the liberal communities, they tended to vote about 21% more for Democrats. In the conservative communities, about 21% more for Republicans. Every election since then has increased to the point where in the 2016 election, it was a 54% gap. Now, what that means is that in most communities, people are living with people who politically agree with them. They're going to the grocery store with people who literally who politically agree with them. They're going to their barber shops, their hair salons, to the locally uh, likely the places they worship. Their kids are going to school with people who come from families who have the same beliefs. And so, and so we begin to create this um, this cocoon that we're living in almost, um, this uh, echo chamber where everybody around us tends to agree with us and, and reinforces our ideas. And then when we throw in social media, that amps it up as well because these virtual communities we're a part of now. And we know what happens on Facebook or on Twitter or the like is that people have a tendency to unfriend people who disagree with them. We get our news more and more from social media. And so as a result of that, this echo chamber gets louder and louder and louder. And pretty soon, we don't even have a reason reasonable sense of what other people believe. Let's get to the nub of it, because what I love what you do is you present the problem beautifully and you open with this scene of people in the workplace. And it'd be great to set that context because then you use that to dig beneath and go, why, why is this at a physiological level? Why is this happening? We started with this because it's just such a real life example. These three characters, you know, one of them, Joan Smith, is a white woman, a Christian who's on the conservative side. She voted for President Trump. It's become an issue for her because she's working in a company where most people are more liberal than she is. The second character, Barry Jones, is a gay man who's married. His husband is uh, Latino, comes from a Latino background. They're both Democrats. Um, and I have obvious uh, political inclinations that way. The third is a woman named Fatima Muhammad, a Muslim woman who originally came from Britain, but has family connections to Somalia and some Afghanistan as well. And, and so these three people come together in this party, and you can see the places that they connect, but the places that they separate. So, you know, the Joan and Fatima, for example, both are more socially conservative. And so they link in that way and feel uncomfortable with, with Barry's uh, sexual orientation. Barry and Fatima connect politically in lots of ways because being more liberal, he's against the Muslim ban, which affects Fatima. And we see how these, these constantly shifting alliances play themselves out as the three of them, even just standing there, try to figure out what to talk about. And, and I think there's, there's something very real about that for us today, especially in the workplace, is that uh, it used to be we could talk about most anything. We'd argue about politics. We'd go out to lunch together. Now it's become almost a blood sport to the point where people have a hard time even working for people who voted for somebody different from them. And this infuses into every part of our life. What you do then is look beneath the rocks of why belonging is essential. And you look at two things you mentioned in the book, bonding and bridging. Yeah, this is a concept that came from a Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam, who some of our listeners probably are familiar with because he wrote a brilliant book called Bowling Alone back in 2000. And he's considered one of the foremost experts in the world on social capital. And, and Putnam creates these distinctions between bonding and bridging relationships. Uh, and that is that we have certain relationships where we're completely bonded. Uh, we we, we co-identify with people. So if uh, often this happens 
um, with families. You know, we have a family bond. I think, you know, I remember growing up in the 1960s and being an anti-Vietnam War protester. And my, my father, who, you know, I, he always loved me and we were never in a situation like some families were. But we had a lot of tension and a lot of political arguments about the fact that um, even though he wasn't a hardcore political conservative, he thought I was too liberal and and the like. And we would go back and forth about this and argue, have these, you know, righteous conversations around the around the uh, dinner table. And then one day we went to visit an uncle for a family event, and my uncle had come out of the Marines, and he was in the 82nd Airborne in World War II, and he was hardcore conservative. And he started to give me a hard time for my political views and for the fact that my hair was a bit longer and whatever. And all of a sudden, my father jumped in like the father bear and and basically, you know, tore him up and told him how, you know, we fought in the war so that he'd have the freedom of his ideas and on and on. My sisters and I were looking at each other like, where was the father who we were just arguing with the night before, you know? But as soon as somebody from outside of our family came into the picture, my father's bond to me as his son and his protection protectiveness towards me as his son overwhelmed any of those differences that we have. And I think most people know that we have that bonded connection. Sometimes it's our family. It can be sometimes too for people who are in, especially in non-dominant communities. You know, for example, here in the United States, uh, African-Americans often talk about the nod when they pass each other on the street. There's sort of a nod. It's like a recognition. We're in this together. Um, and then we have bridging relationships. And bridging relationships are also important to us, but they usually cross some of those boundaries. So the relationship that we have with somebody of a different race, a different gender, a different uh, identity group uh, can often be a very important relationship to us, but it, but it bridges as opposed to bonds. And, and those relationships can be affected by outside circumstances. So for example, I remember not that many years ago when the OJ Simpson case happened here in the United States and the verdict came back the next day and you know, all the research showed that African-Americans had strongly different views than white people did about whether or not he was guilty. And the next day at work, all of a sudden, black and white folks who were very connected felt a little uncomfortable with each other. Like this external thing had reminded us that we were bridging rather than bonding. And so we moved back and forth between these two kind of relationships. Now, sometimes the confusion about which is going on can, can really impact us. This shows up a lot here in the States, and not, you know, a lot of my friends and, and associates have, have talked about this, in relationship between white women and black women. And that white women coming from their orientation as women that think are thinking, we're all sisters, you know, we're all in this together, we're all bonded. But black women coming from the racial distinction say, well, not quite. You know, we, we have that difference. And this can lead sometimes to white women feeling like black women are holding back or they're not opening up to them. Black women feeling like white women are being a little bit too intrusive or assumptive about the relationship because we're not clear what kind of a relationship we actually have. You're one of the world's experts in bias and your book, Everyday Bias, is one I must get you back on to talk about because this led me down a rabbit hole that I, got, I went and I found Everyday Bias. But you talk about the biases behind these decisions. And I thought that was fascinating because it's not to excuse us, but it's to let us understand ourselves as the animal and why we tend to build bias into our mental constructs. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I'd love to do that. I'd love to have another conversation about, about that book. But this is, this is one of the things that, that was so important for us. The biggest breakthrough we had in doing that work was, you know, we always thought of bias as this bad thing. We won't eliminate bias. And, you know, we, people have done anti-bias trainings and we've talked about the the, you know, the dangers of bias. And of course, bias has all kinds of dangers associated with it. Everything from just making bad decisions to people getting shot because somebody looks dangerous when they're really they're not. And we see these stories all the time in the news. Uh, but the big breakthrough we had in, in actually studying 
um, the neurocognitive research behind bias and some of the social science research behind bias was a recognition that bias is as normal to human beings as breathing. That our brains are actually designed to use bias to help us move through the world quickly. I mean, if you think about it, let's put it in terms outside of human beings for a moment. We walk across our kitchen floor every day. We go into another building and we start walking across the floor without thinking about it. Um, we don't know for sure that um, every step we take is on solid ground. We don't know for sure um, that we may not step someplace where it's a false front. We would fall right in the trap or something like that. But we make our brains make that assumption because we've walked across enough floors so that we can guess that the next step will be solid. Um, my good friend, Sukhvinder Singh Obi, who um, heads up the Brain Body Research Lab at McMaster University in Canada, says, says it this way. He says, our brains have designed to be good enough most of the time. <laughs> um, so we make these guesses. Now, now, this makes our life very fluid. We can walk across that floor without thinking about it. However, if we didn't have that function and we had to check out every step to make sure it was safe, just imagine how much our lives would slow down. And so as a result of that, we make very quick, we're able to make very quick decisions and move through life very, very fast. Now, let's put this in the context of human beings interacting with each other. Go back thousands of years ago, we were living in caves and jungles. We'd see a group of people around a water hole. We'd have to make an instant determination whether that group was them or us. Because if it was the wrong tribe, if it was another tribe, we might get killed. So we learned to make those same very quick distinctions about human beings. We look at a human being and we determine, are they friend or foe? That's the very first thing our mind does. Um, is there some threat to us? And how do we make that determination? By comparing what we see to other images we've had in the past. And so if, for example, one grows up in a culture like the United States, where we're constantly being flooded by negative images of African-American men, we know, for example, the research at the Annenberg School shows that there's 25 or 30% more likely that African-American man is 25 to 30% more likely to be depicted as a criminal on TV or the movies or whatever. And so we have, we're bathed in these stereotypes, and then lo and behold, this African-American man occurs in front of us, and the first thing our brain says is, watch out because it associates with those negative stereotypes. Now, the same thing can happen, by the way, with men and women or with people with uh, people uh, LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people, or somebody from a different culture. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, and, you know, growing up uh, in, the, in the shadow of the Holocaust, you know, I had this whole conversation about Germans and whether or not Germans were safe. Now, it turns out, some of my best friends in the world, one in particular now is German-born and done a lot of work on that, and I realize it's not Germans. But as a young child, having heard all these horrible stories, it was, in, it was easy to, to take that stereotype into interactions with different kinds of people. And I'm sure everybody we're thinking, who's listening can think of some group of people who they have that kind of instant reaction to. On the other hand, the one last piece of this is that bias can be enormously helpful to us because sometimes it helps us spot the danger that's coming early enough to protect ourselves. So we're in a constant dance between this, the positive and the shadow side of this function of the brain. To objectify it a little bit, you talk about internalized bias, and you mentioned the great work of Kenneth Clark and the study of the dolls. I thought this one was fascinating. This is one of the most famous studies on race relations in American history. Um, back in the late 1940s, a psychologist named Kenneth Clark was attributed with doing this study, which later was a key factor in the Brown versus Board of Education decision in which the United States Supreme Court outlawed segregation in schools. And what he did was he showed children 
two dolls. One was white, one was black. Aside from that, they were identical. And he gave the children these two dolls and asked them which they choose. And the children were a mix of black and white children. And overwhelmingly, all of the children, including the black children, chose the white dolls. And they described the black dolls as being dirty or not as nice or or something like that. And um, Earl Warren, who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, said that that study codified for a lot of the justices, more than anything else, the dangers of segregation of what it was doing to the, the soul of black children. Now, there's something very interesting about that study, and that is that it's historically attributed to Kenneth Clark. But it was actually, the idea was actually generated by his wife, Mamie Phipps Clark, who was also a psychologist, who also was the primary person who ran the study. And yet, historically, the study is attributed to her husband, Kenneth Clark. So so the irony is, here is this, <laughs> this famous race relations study which is sexist in the way it's communicated historically, which just goes to show us that just because we have one issue dealt with doesn't mean we can't be blind to another. You talk about that as well in your work on bias, but um, closely linked to stereotype threat is self-fulfilling prophecies. And I thought this one was really interesting because this is something that we can take immediate action on. And by the way, for the listener, uh, in the book, Howard constantly gives you exercises on how to actually improve and get get over bias or at least reduce it in your life because uh, as you say Howard it's very difficult to totally get rid of it in the first place <laughs> you mentioned the Yale Child Study Center who asked preschool teachers to observe disruptive behaviors in children i thought this one was brilliant just before i get to the Yale study just to quickly say in terms of dealing with bias i think one of the things that we've learned is that we probably will never have our biases go away, but we can learn to disrupt them. We can learn to mitigate them. The metaphor I like to use is it's like the clutch in a standard transmission automobile. When you step on a clutch, the motor doesn't stop running, but it disengages from moving the car forward. And in the same sense, when we become aware of our biases, the biases may still be there, but we can disengage them from impacting our behavior. But moving on to the Yale study, yeah, the Yale study was fascinating because what they did is they took preschool teachers and they showed them a video of four children playing in a preschool environment. The children were about four years old, as I remember. Two of the children were white, two were black, one of each gender. And they asked them to watch the study and to identify challenging behavior when it occurred. What the teachers didn't know was that the video screen that they were watching had laser eye tracking technology in it. So in other words, this allows the researchers to see where on the screen people are looking when they're watching the video. Overwhelmingly, all of the teachers tended to identify the black children as engaging more in challenging behavior. And they looked at the black children first when they were told to look for challenging behavior. And they identified the behavior even though there was actually no challenging behavior in the video. In other words, having been told that there was challenging behavior that they should look for, they in essence created in their mind that it was there and more quickly associated with the black children. Once again, we can see how this shows up. You know, if you're if you have seen stereotypes in which black children are usually more of a problem, or have heard that more black children are usually more of a problem, and you hear there's a problem, you look where you think it's there. I think it was Goethe who said, "We we see what we look for, and we look for what we know." Mm-hmm. And, and it's again confirmation bias. And then what's really interesting is is the Pygmalion effect that happens thereafter. So the teachers passing on that knowledge or that framing to the next teacher, regardless of it being present or not. Yeah, in fact, there there is some very uh, interesting research that done, that's been done at Stanford University the School of Education and some other places where what they'll do is they'll take a student and they'll give that student to a new teacher with the, the student's transcript and they'll fake the transcript to either be especially strong or especially weak and they'll watch what happens and how that changes the way the teacher interacts with the child 
and the child then lives up or down to the expectation. So it's a little bit like my, my fair lady, you know, that's why we say it's called the Pygmalion effect. You know, it's, it's very much like that. If we start to treat children like they're smart, they will perform at a higher level. If we treat children like they're decent people, reasonable people, easy to get along with, they'll start to they'll start to be that way with us. Uh, but if we treat them like they're trouble, if we treat them like we don't trust them, if we treat them like they're stupid, they generally will descend to that kind of behavior as well. And of course, children are just more visible examples of ourselves as adults. Yeah, they don't know how to hide it yet. <laughs> they haven't learned that. Skill. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They haven't learned to put on the shield that we all learn to as adults to to cover ourselves, to mask ourselves. Yeah, and and a, another shield is a defensive shield. You mentioned this in the book that this next topic is bound to spike up the brain and create a defensive reaction, and it's the term white privilege. White privilege is an interesting phenomenon because um, I think most people don't understand it. And, and it's often, to be fair, it's often not used appropriately from the standpoint of what it really is. Because white privilege is actually a systemic phenomenon. It's not inherently a personal phenomenon, although we could personally be affected by it. I like to say it's like a rainstorm. You know, a rainstorm isn't a personal phenomenon, but when you're out in the rainstorm, you get personally very wet. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a personal rainstorm. White privilege is a phenomenon that occurs after centuries, in the case of most cultures, of, of whiteness being seen as more acceptable, more positive, more favorable, um, more preferable um, than, uh, than to be of color, whether it's black, brown, Asian, you know, whatever. And so what begins to happen is uh, society begins to associate positive qualities to whites and negative qualities to people of color. Um, and, and that can be who's smarter, who's stronger, who's more capable, who's friendlier, who's safer whose ideas make more sense, um, you know, the list is almost endless. And, and for most of us growing up in Western culture, um, we've been exposed to cultures of white supremacy for our entire lives. And so it's natural for us to take the information we've been exposed to our whole lives and make assumptions about people based on that. And so without even realizing it on a conscious level, we may listen a bit a little bit more carefully or give a little bit more credence to somebody who, who looks like, sounds like, talks like us, um, than somebody who doesn't. Now, now one of the challenges is that um, while, as I said before, it can be personal, it's not necessarily a personal phenomenon. And, and where I think we've strayed around the topic of white privilege is we now make it personal. Say, you have white privilege, or you have white privilege, or you have white privilege. And at some point, people feel attacked by it because they, they're not even conscious and aware that they're doing it. And so they be, rather than having this be a learning opportunity to understand other people, it just can make people very defensive and shut them down. You mentioned a great study around avoidance, which is the study a research has conducted using the game Guess Who. That's right. And it's fascinating because um, the researchers at Harvard who, Harvard who did this, it was, a, it was a kind of a typical, you know, 20 questions kind of a thing. Um, when, you, when you try to describe, uh, ask to describe a group of pictures, how hesitant people were, white people in particular, to identify the people of uh, people as people of color. So they would look at it, they would describe them in every other way. And, and actually, it reminds me of a story that was told to me years ago by a colleague of mine who's an African-American woman and her son. Her son was quite outstanding soccer player, and he was invited to play on a on a select team and at a very high level. And he was the only black player on the team. And um, and th they were at a game and and standing on the sidelines. And one of the mothers from the other team was shouting at her her child. You know, you know. Um, and she was she was referring she was talking about her ch telling her child how to guard my friend's son. And she said, you know, 
um, follow that guy, you know, and her, her child says, which guy? She says, you know, the, the big one, the tall one, the one with the red shirt, you know, everything but the black one. You know, she didn't want to say the black child. So she said everything but, but of course the child looked at her and like everybody had a red shirt on. They were all wearing the same uniform. <laughs> but the mother, the mother was so bollocked up by being able to, you know, to, to being able to identify the child by race that, that she was flustered and couldn't figure out any other way to tell, to, to describe the child. And I do think that that, I, I see that often, you know, that you'll hear a couple of white people talking and they'll say, you know, that, that guy who works on the third floor, you know, John, he, he's black. It'll be a whisper, like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, like he doesn't know he is, you know. But, but, yeah. but I think it's, it, I think it speaks to the level of fear and, um, and discomfort we have about talking about these issues. And of course, when we can't talk about things, they remain unresolved. Jumping onto the brain, then Howard, to even go a level below, so to speak. I loved the way you talked about Wilson from Castaway in the Tom Hanks movie to give how we react when we're isolated. You know, we do have this desperate need to feel in connection with people. I mean, one of the things that we've discovered is, you know, Abraham Maslow created his great hierarchy back in 1943. And, and Maslow's hierarchy is something that's almost, you know, it's, 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 it's ubiquitous in our culture. You can say Maslow's hierarchy and everybody kind of knows what you're talking about, or most people know what you're talking about. What Maslow said was that you have certain needs that you have to get met before you worry about others. And you start with your physiological needs and then safety and then belonging and then up to self-esteem and finally self-actualization. And in short form, what he was saying was, if you're starving to death, you're not going to be sitting around contemplating life. You're going to be out searching for food. But we now realize that Maslow was wrong through the social neuro and cognitive science research. And that is that, that human beings need to belong can actually even preempt our need to survive, which of course explains things like suicide bombers and parents who, you know, who throw themselves in front of a, you know, a dangerous thing to try to save their children or soldiers who throw themselves over a grenade, this sort of a thing, um, because our need to belong is primal. And, and it probably comes from the fact that, uh, as children, um, you know, the most vulnerable time of human existence is childbirth and, and you know, in our immediate infancy. And, and for human beings, unless we belong to somebody for the first two, three years of our lives at least, um, we'll die. Um, and, and, and so whether it's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, or the orphanage, somebody has to be taking care of us in order for us to survive. And so the first imprint we get as human beings is I exist because you exist. And we carry this throughout our lives and it leads to social behavior in which we, um, in which we emulate or copy the behavior of people around us. Um, even, even to the point where it leads us to do things that we know are wrong. Um, we, it leads to our, um, trying to look like, sound like, act like, or talk like people who are like us or, or, um, being afraid to share, uh, uh, differences of opinions in some circumstances. We see this play out in businesses a lot with, with groupthink, you know, some very famous examples, you know, maybe one of the most famous is in Challenger disaster when there were a couple of engineers at Morton Thiokol who apparently knew that the O-rings were a problem, the eventual cause of the disaster. And yet weren't willing to push the case because everybody else disagreed with them. And they said, okay, fine. And just let it go. And lo and behold, people die. So, so we do have this need, uh, this great desire to, to fit in. There's a brilliant study you mentioned, which is the rabbit puppet experiment that shows that this happens at a very, very young age. Yes. Yes. Some researchers at the Yale baby lab, there's a, you know, fascinating um, school up at Yale where they study babies behavior and, and they do this experiment where, and the babies are six, seven, eight, ten months old, so very, very young. And they'll, they'll give a baby two bowls of food at first, uh, maybe one's graham crackers and one's green beans. And the babies, you know, show some preference to one versus the other, and we'll start eating the one versus the other. My guess would be the graham crackers. And um, and then a different researcher who hasn't seen the baby's reaction, so that they can't 
you know, pollute the experiment, comes in with two stuffed animals and has the two stuffed animals pretend to eat out of the same bowls that the baby was eating out of and then offers them to the babies. And more than 80% of the time, the babies choose the stuffed animal that's pretending to eat from the bowl of food that they like the best. In other words, at that already at that age, less than one years old, the babies are saying, if you like what I like, you're on my team. And of course, we see this playing itself out right now in our political system. You talk about when that's taken away from us, so the exclusion part, like the guys with the Challenger disaster, they go against the tribe, the tribe turns on them, they're excluded. But taking that to an extreme level, I couldn't get over it when I read what you mentioned about the exclusion element in the Hanoi Hilton. You know, that story comes from a good friend and client of mine, Angel Lugo, who's a lieutenant major in the United States Air Force. And uh, Angel told me that uh, that he had met this guy who was a, he was a former prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton. He had been in prison for seven years in Vietnam and, uh, and got out and then, you know, he got to know him quite well. And he told the story, he said, in the Hanoi Hilton, a lot of people know that this, the prisoners developed what they called a TAP code. It was a modified Morse code system. And it allowed them when they were in solitary confinement to communicate from cell to cell simply by tapping on the wall or the, or the uh, bars of the cell. Um, and and new prisoners were taught this very, very soon when they came. They had developed a whole new way to teach people how to do this. But what he said was that um, they began to realize that when, they st- when somebody stopped using the tap code, when they in fact lost community or, or for some reason weren't allowed to use the tap code, um, they could almost guarantee that that person would not survive. That in a very short order, once they lost track with the community, once they lost track with the contact with others, um, they they perished. And and this was not um, not unlike stories that I've read about people in the Holocaust. Um, the same thing that people who managed to maintain some sense of community uh, when they were in the camps had a much greater chance of survival than people who were isolated and and had to make it on their own. And this is the thing that groups can use as a a weapon towards a change maker. For example, like one of the things I was really really attracted to was that many listeners to this show would be change makers or mavericks in their business trying to push a new vision of the business or innovate in some way and bring in new ideas. And those new ideas are often rejected. And it goes beyond the idea being rejected. The person becomes rejected as well. How do you see that working well in an organization? This is true. And it's just, I'll get to organization in a moment, but before we go there, this even impacts things like addiction, like drug addiction. Um, you know, Bruce Alexander is a Canadian psychologist who studies drug addiction. And when they do drug addiction studies, what they usually do is they'll put a rat in a circumstance, like in a cage, they give them morphine or whatever the substance is they're working with 57 days in a row. I have no idea why that's the protocol, but it happens to be. And then they test them, you know, how quickly they can get off or abandon the drug. And overwhelmingly, most of them stay addicted. And so a lot of our addiction studies are based on studies like that. Well, what Alexander said was, you know, if you put me in a cage with nothing but a bottle staring in front of me, I'd probably want to numb myself out too. So he created an alternative. He called them rat parks. And, uh, you know, we have a kind of a cartoon of one of them in the book. There are these sort of large areas where they have other rats to hang out with. They have toys to play with. They're in a much more natural environment. And they conduct the exact same study in that environment, and the levels of addiction plummet when they're in um, environments with other rats. In other words, it's the isolation by themselves that causes them to numb themselves out. One of the things that I did was look at that in the context of the 12-step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous and the like, and interviewed a whole group of people who do 12-step. And, and what they all said was the same thing, They some variation of the same thing. They said, 
We don't come to the meetings to learn things, although we do learn things there. The reason we come is because we feel a sense of being known, of being seen for who we are, and being and belonging to a group in a way that we don't feel in the rest of our lives. In the rest of our lives, people reject us for our behavior. In this part of our lives, people accept us for who we are, which allows us to feel less stressed and be able to actually work on ourselves and stay sober. So it's that partnership, that collaboration, that sense of fellowship that really supports people in that way. Now, all of this, as we were saying, goes right into the organizations that we work in. Because if you're in an organization where you think that people really accept you for who you are, where they value you, where they want to be around you, you're going to be far more likely to be able to share an idea, particularly an edgy one. You know, uh, your, your show is about innovation. You know, where does innovation come from? Innovation comes from people who are willing to push the envelope. They're willing to throw ideas up against the wall and see if they stick. Our great innovators, I mean, Steve Jobs is one example, fail all over the place. I mean, a lot of us remember the Newton, you know, the first digital assistant, which was a complete failure, or the, or the clamshell iBooks or whatever, you know, all these things that Apple tried. You know, we think of Apple as a successful company, but they made a lot of mistakes because they were willing to try things that were different, and that's what made them great. And so the more we create environments of belonging, the more we create environments in our businesses in which people feel safe, in which they feel comfortable, in which they feel like the environment reflects them, the more innovation we're going to have, the more freedom people are going to have for trying some things and not worrying that a simple mistake could have them look like a fool and therefore being ostracized. While we're on the organization, because you, you do a whole chapter in depth on the organization, what kind of mental toolkit can leaders and businesses bring in to make an organization more diverse and more accepting of others? We identified that there are eight basic pathways to belonging in organizations. The first is that everybody understands what the core narrative of the organization is and that they can sync that up with their own narrative. In other words, we know what the organization's here for, what we're committed to, what we're trying to do, and that's consistent with my own values. And I remember I had a client um, a number of years ago, we were doing a big diversity project. This was a Midwest hospital system that had a lot of challenges historically around race. And they, they made a lot of strides. And one of the things that they did was they put up a big sign in their human resources department. And it said, the name of the organization was Hurley Medical Center. They said, here at Hurley Medical Center, we're committed to diversity and inclusion. If you're not it really would be a waste of your time to fill out the application. You know, I mean, it, I, I forget the exact wording, but it was something like, it was said very politely, but it was very clear. You know, if you're coming here, you should know this is what's going to be expected of you. And so, of course, you get people who tend to align. So that alignment is really important. Another really important part is for people to recognize that the affective side of business, how people feel, is just as important as the sort of the logistical side of business. And often, you know, people don't pay attention to people's emotional experience at work. They don't pay attention to the ontological experience that people have about work. They're only looking at the cognitive and behavioral side of it. And so we miss sometimes when people are not performing at their best because they don't feel valued, because they don't feel connected, because they don't feel included. And one way that we get there by having people included leads to the third of the pathways, which is to create opportunities for people to conduct constructive dialogue. Even on um, difficult issues, you know, one of my clients and friends, Caroline Wonga, who is the chief diversity officer for Target, which of course has tens of thousands of employees, conducts regular courageous conversation sessions, as she calls them. This allows people to learn how to talk about difficult issues. When the Muslim ban here in the United States was being talked about, or when the uh, issue came up around transgender bathroom rights or things like this, she'll bring employees together and create a structured way for them to talk about those things and have a safe space for the conversation, um, share their own biases, um, be willing to be vulnerable, to, to reflect on what they're hearing. And so 
Um, so we can begin to do that as well. And then that's built on maybe the, the fourth point, which is regular communication. And that to recognize that we have to be communicating with people, that the most dangerous communication is the one that's not given. Um, so, um, so that's really important, too, that organizations keep people in the loop at every level. Um, that we recognize that, that um, nothing is perfect in life and they're going to have breakdowns. Um, you know, my wife and I, 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 I adore my wife. We've been together for 27 years. And I like to say to people, it's been 24 of the best years of my life. And that's the, <laughs> secret, to our, that's the secret to a happy marriage is to recognize that not every minute is going to be perfect. And so that when you're out of sorts with each other, rather than think, oh, my God, this is coming to an end, just say, all right, how do we get back on track again? Um, and then, of course, and then of course, I could go on, but the one last really important one is um, that I want to focus on because I don't want to go through all of them is, is that we understand that there's some kind of collective gain in all of this and that I understand how I'm going to win by the organization doing well, how the organization is going to win by me doing well. Our win, if you will, is completely at sync. If we're in an organization where we feel the organization wins by me losing, or I have to sacrifice an important part of myself in order for me to be successful in this organization, it's not going to be pretty for long. One of the things I took from that was if you're going to align your values and your narrative with a company narrative or a company value, you need to really put yourself under the microscope. That's what I loved about this book because the ability to think critically without bias is maybe elusive, but at least we can try. And I love the tools that you give us in the book and, and the questions you make us ask of ourselves. It's really that. It's starting the questions being asked. And one of those is a very hot topic, which is the political one. And you bring to mind something neutral, which is in the past, which is the Dreyfu affair. And it'd be great to get a little bit of a background on that and how confirmation bias was very much at play. The Dreyfus affair is, is something I'm sure many people know about. You know, Alfred Dreyfus was um, a Jewish soldier um, in, uh, in France in the late um, 19th century. And uh, uh, he was caught up in uh, what became a very famous um, circumstance. And, and the circumstance was that uh, they had found some notes uh, in the embassy that were uh, that seemed to be spy, basically written by a spy, and and he was quickly identified. Uh, he was the only officer, the only Jewish officer in the general staff in a in um, you know in a place where anti-Semitism was rife, and he was identified. and And the entire affair, and you know, I don't really would take the time to get into too many of the details here, but the entire affair was one example after another of confirmational behavior. In other words, the the inspectors. Um, particularly um, Mercier, I think was his name, the inspector decided right from the start that he was the guilty party and went about generating evidence, even though it wasn't real, to establish that and ignoring evidence to the contrary. And it wasn't until the great French intellectual and writer, um, Emile Zola, got involved and and actually um, put himself at risk uh, for libel by, um, by writing an article accusing Mercier and, and the other investigators of doing this, that Dreyfus was eventually uh, freed, but only after losing a huge part of his life and spending years in solitary confinement and um, a Devil's Island and the like, um, that, that he did that. And unfortunately, Dreyfus didn't die from that, but it certainly had a huge impact on his life. But we've certainly seen that happen time after time after time in American history and all over the world where somebody is identified and we later find out that they're, they're innocent, but that the, the mob rule, the, the belief of the mob fitting along with biases, um, end up having a uh, dramatically negative effect on that person. And of course, in a smaller, not smaller in terms of the impact, but smaller in terms of the 
you know, number of people. This is exactly what happens when a police officer approaches an African-American man who's unarmed and sees that man as a danger and assumes that when he walks towards him, he's trying to threaten him and therefore pulls out his revolver and shoots him, even though the man who was doing nothing, let's say, but just asking a question. And so we see this happen time and time again. Now, of course, we take the very same thing into our businesses. Uh, we know, for example, in American business that um, it's 40% more likely for a young white man to get a stretch assignment than it is a young woman or a man or woman of color. Um, a stretch assignment being a time when you're given a work assignment that you haven't proven yourself capable of being, but people kind of feel like you probably could do it. Now, these are these are often the big springboards for us to get promotions and to show our stuff in organizations. So if 40%, if white men get 40% more opportunities like that, then they're likely to um, have a lot more opportunities for those promotions. And in fact, we know that that's exactly what happens. Going further on this, because you give great examples of this. You talk about presidential candidates, for example, the taller one wins, Richard Nixon's famous loss to Kennedy. And this is key, the televised presidential debates of 1960s and the fact that Nixon had a five o'clock shadow. That's right. Kennedy was very photogenic and he was more savvy on how to use the media. He did, he cultivated relationships with the press. You know, he would sit around and drink with them and socialize with them. Uh, Nixon was much more uh, distrustful of the press and paranoid even about them. And he didn't look as good on TV. He didn't want to put makeup on. Kennedy was fine with doing that. And so, in fact, during the great debates, the the first really great debates in American political history, the televised debates, that is. Nixon lost the debates on television, even though, to many people's account, he won the debates on radio. In other words, people who were just listening on the radio actually scored Nixon higher. But on television, because of the way he looked, it had a huge impact on them. And we know that physical appearance does this. It, it has a huge impact on people in lots of different ways. When you were talking about politics, I pulled out a really powerful quote, which is, in a polarized culture, the extremes set the tone and they tend to take over. Polarity leads people to justify the unjustifiable. And you use this to set up examples of tribalism gone crazy when power starts to get into the minds of people and they start to dehumanize others like we saw in the Holocaust. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, if we look at what's going on in the American political system right now, and like I said, I mean, I, I'm just more familiar with the American political system, but I know it's going on other places as well. We can see it. You know, it used to be that we had a bell curve in politics. You, most people were in the center and, you know, center left or center right. But there was a lot of collaboration, you know, famously, you know, John McCain and Joe Biden teamed up on lots of different legislative th kinds of things. Ted Kennedy arguably the most liberal member of the Senate, and Orrin Hatch, arguably the most conservative member of the Senate, um, were good friends who teamed up on, um, on education reform, for example. Uh, and this was more the norm. And then you had people on the extreme, so it was like a bell curve. But what's happened over a course of the last 30 years, and a lot of this was triggered by Newt Gingrich coming in in 1994 and very consciously um, setting Republicans up to be oppositional to Democrats, um, and not to blame it all on him, but that was a real trigger, is that it's gotten more and more and more separated to the point where now we're at a dumbbell curve where everything's on the ends and nothing's in the middle. And um, and then the, the very notion of collaborating with the other side is is problematic and can, and can cost you in your primary voting because primaries tend to be your more extreme members of both sides. And so the net impact of this is that rather than being an issue-based uh, phenomenon where we look at each other and we say, you know, I might disagree with you on gun rights, but agree with you on foreign policy, but disagree with you on domestic policy, but agree with you on financial issues. Um, instead of that, we now say, no, you're one of those kind of people. 
And I assume that if you're one of those kind of people, you agree lockstep with everything that's on that side. And it's been fascinating to me, as I, as you know, um, you know, being coming more from the political left, it, it, I, I made a point of going out and interviewing now over 100 people who voted for President Trump. And it was fascinating for me to see how my own stereotypes had set in and to realize that this was a vastly diverse group of people who who range from people in the far extreme who were the people you'd see on TV wearing their make America great again hats and signs and you know all this kind of stuff to probably I think 56% of the people who said they actually voted more against Clinton than for Trump and they sort of held their nose and voted for him and yet we turn them into one homogenous group and the same is true for people on the right about people on the left we assume that everybody on the left agrees with everything that that people say but of course there's a vast dif- uh, broad range of difference between people on that side as well because it's really more of a continuum than it is a binary but we turn it into a binary and that's where the problems start you talk about some of this being inbuilt in us and studies being done to show that we're born with certain tendencies to fit into our tribe straight away but media has a massive impact on how we observe and you mentioned the quote earlier on that we we see what we look for and we look for what we know and because of that, we look for the bias, the confirmation bias in media. Media can be biased in its own right. Well, not only can be, but I think because of the advent of cable news, um, where we now have this bifurcation of the media, certain media sources actually build themselves on their bias. I mean, here in the United States, when we look at Fox News, for example, Fox News is built on being more right-wing and conservative. MSNBC built on being more left-wing and liberal. Because they're no longer looking for a major market. You see, in the old days, when we had ABC, NBC, and CBS, or BBC, or whatever, we were looking for a broad market. So our news went out to everybody in the society. We had to get as much of that market as possible. And so if we were too extreme, we were going to lose half of our potential market share. And so we couldn't be too extreme. And so you had basically what we might call homogenized news, you know, on all those stations. And not to mention the fact that in those days, it was considered to be unethical for a news broadcaster to give their point of view. In other words, it was it, the purpose of news broadcasters were to be to seem as impartial as possible. And when Walter Cronkite, for example, came out against the Vietnam War in the late 1960s, it was seismic. President Johnson said at the time, when we lost Walter Cronkite, we lost the country. Nowadays, if you watch MSNBC and I watch Fox News, we're not only getting different interpretations of the news, we're getting entirely different news. We're getting news that's selected to present a particular point of view. And one of the things that I do consciously is to watch different news stations, and I encourage people to do that because you get a sense of where people are coming from. But it's amazing how facts are left out of stories because they don't fit the narrative on one side or the other. Pretty soon, that echo chamber gets louder and louder. Not to mention the fact that, for the most part, we don't even watch the news anymore. We watch people watching the news. You know, We turn on and there's a panel of pundits who are there to analyze and interpret it for us before we've ever even seen the original news story. So we've given up our responsibility as members of a democracy to make these decisions for ourselves. You mentioned the toilet assumption, and I thought this would be a good way to finish because we do treat all of these topics that you raise, all of this thinking that you raise in the book, all these questions that you make us pose ourselves, we tend to just want them to go away. And it'd be great to tell our audience about the toilet assumption. The toilet assumption comes from a man named Philip Slater, who was a professor at Brandeis University back in the late 1960s. He wrote a brilliant book called The Pursuit of Loneliness, American Culture at a Breaking Point, and talked about separation and, and culture. And what he said was, he was actually referring to war and the way we make war at the time, which was saying that, you know, that it used to be in warfare, the soldier would have to confront the person he killed. 
you know, if you killed somebody, you either stabbed them or shot them at close range, you knew that you were committing murder. But now, of course, warfare is conducted mostly technologically. You know, you're up in an airplane, you press a button, then you watch a, you watch a computer screen, and there's this poof on the computer screen, and it doesn't occur for you that that poof is, you know, 300 people died or, or 1,000 people died from that bomb. And, and what he said was it's very, very analogous to, you know, the way we used to dispose of our waste. In the old days, before we had toilets and could flush away our waste, we had to dispose it into cans or buckets in our homes, and then we had to figure out a way to get rid of it, and we had to dump it somewhere. And so if we dumped it on the street, we were very clear we were dumping it on the street. We had to take responsibility for doing that. And if our neighbor saw us doing that, as opposed to wherever the appropriate place was, we got in trouble with our neighbor. Now we just flush it away. We have no idea where it goes. We have no idea what happens to our waste. It just disappears from our view. And in the same way, um, we live in a society today in which we just want to avoid dealing with things. You know, we think that if we um, make a decision and don't pay any attention to what happens to it, and, and of course we see this in the environment every day as people throw things into their trash can without thinking about the fact that that plastic that they throw is going to go into a landfill and it's going to be there for 187 years before it decays. Um, we don't have any thought about that. And, and really, so it's really a call for us to be more responsible for our behavior and to pay attention for the impact of our behavior and how those consequences both intended and unintended can have a huge impact on the world around us. That's the point. And it's one of the reasons I thought this book was so important and, and I wanted to share it was I love the idea of spaceship Earth and that on spaceship Earth, there's no passengers, there's only crew. And your book really brings that to a fore because it starts to give us the tools to overcome ourselves and overcome the tribes that we've been born into and that we've created for ourselves. And only by doing that and only by asking questions, firstly, we're going to become much more skillful in the workplace as well, because we're going to have skills that are really atrophying in the world today. And then secondly, the world's going to be a much better place. Yeah, well, that's what I hope. I mean, I hope it will help people find ways to reach across the barrier. And I, and I do encourage people to check out some of the various techniques. And we haven't had a lot of chance to talk about that today. But, you know, I have tried to provide people both uh, techniques and also organizations that are doing some great work because there are a lot of people who are trying to bridge these differences and, and heaven knows we need it right now. How about we give the audience even one tool that they can do? Maybe it's an exercise in the evening or in the workplace and then mention some of those organizations would be great as well. Sure, absolutely. And just before we do that, I want to I want to also just acknowledge John Robert Tartaglione, who helped me write the book. He's a mentee of mine who did some extraordinary research and really helped write the book and do a lot of the research behind it. And and Nikki Caldwell also, who served as a really editor and organizer for us. Um, you know, one tool that I would recommend people um, use is uh, comes from a woman named Elizabeth Lesser, who was one of the co-founders of the Omega Institute here in the United States, and it's called Take the Other to Lunch, she calls it. And uh, I modified it slightly, but Elizabeth uh, really did the, the core work on this. And um, and basically, it's a tool for bridging a gap between people in your life who you you really want to connect with. So basically, you know, what I recommend, choose somebody in your life. And I would start with a five-pounder rather than a 50-pounder. In other words, not somebody you're at war with, but somebody, let's say, Let's say you've got a political difference with a parent or somebody you really care about. And, and you start by um, just acknowledging that we're not here um, to convince each other. We're here to understand each other, to really understand what's going on. And then do five things, basically, once you've made that agreement. And I generally recommend that people set time to be able to do it. So in other words, we'll each have 10 minutes for this part or we'll each have five minutes for this part so that one person doesn't dominate the dialogue. So the first is to start with what is something that you admire about the other person? Now, this is important because 
So often when we're in discord with each other, we forget all the things that we like about that person. And just creating some balance by saying, I want to start by saying, you know, I admire your intelligence. I admired your sensibility. I admire this about you. And, and because that separates our conversation about the idea from our conversation about the person. Then the second question, which each person gets to ask is, what are some life experiences that have led you to feel the way you do? And so people get a chance to really talk about why they feel the way they feel. And this is so important because so often we, we argue about what we feel, but we don't get underneath the surface to look at why we feel that way. And if we understood why, we could really resonate with the other person's point of view. So, you know, why is it that you think that this is important or why do you think this is threatening? Then the third is, what is it about my point of view that really threatens you or scares you? Because usually when there's, then there's discord because of human, between human beings, it's because fear is present. And if we can bring that up to the surface and get people to understand, well, that makes me nervous because of this, or I'm afraid if people believe that and we followed that path, this would happen, then we can understand kind of where people are going about this. Then the fourth is, what have you always wanted to ask somebody from the other side? This can be funny at times. I remember one time I was doing using this technique to do a mediation between two people who had had a conflict. One was a um, a gay man, the other was a straight man. And the conflict had come up over something that was said in a public environment about sexual orientation and gave them an opportunity to ask something they wanted to ask. The straight guy asked the gay guy, so when did you decide to be gay? <laughs> and, um, and, the gay and the gay guy responded by saying, when did you decide to be straight? <laughs> and the guy's, the guy's jaw fell because he had never thought of it that way. And he said, wow, it never occurred to me. I never decided that. I just was. And the gay guy said, me too. The last piece of it, is there anything you'd like to say to clean up the past? Because so often, once we have a new understanding, a new awareness, we look at our behavior from the past and we say, wow, you know, I've said things in the past that I wouldn't say now if I knew that. And so, for example, in this particular case that I was just describing, at the end of it, the straight guy said to the gay guy, you know, he said, listen, he said, I still feel uncomfortable with this, but I realize that I've listened to people tell jokes about people like you. I've even participated in that. And I want you to know that I apologize for that and I'll never do that again. And now all of a sudden he's able to move forward without dragging that past into the future. And that's what we really want for people. We want people to have an opportunity to create a new future. And where can people find out more about your work, Howard, and some of the organizations you mentioned? The organization is called Udarta Consulting, and I can be reached at howard at udarta.com. That's U-D-A-R-T-A. -A. Um, we actually are just forming a new website. I was the founder of Cook Ross and worked there for 30 years, just sold that company this summer, and still doing a lot of work with Cook Ross. You could reach Cook Ross at cookross.com, C-O-O-K-R-O-S-S.com. There are some terrific organizations here in the United States around religion. For example, there's the Tannenbaum Center, which does a lot of great work around religion, crossing barriers. There are some wonderful people now doing work across the political divide. Uh, one of the people I would really recommend people looking into uh, is the work of Jonathan Haidt, who is a, a professor at NYU, wrote a brilliant book called The Righteous Mind, in which he kind of breaks down some of the underpinnings, the values underneath liberals and conservatives and why we see things in different ways. And, and that can be really helpful. There's something called the Pro-Truce Pledge, which is something that was created by Ohio State professor named Gleb Zapersky that really is trying to encourage people to stay away from propaganda and finding what actual truth is before we post things, for example, on social media. So those are just a few. But the good news is that there are a lot of people really trying to make a difference. And the more we can support those organizations, the better. Diversity and inclusion expert and author of Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart, Howard J. Ross. Thanks for joining us. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you.